Uh, we've been working our way, of course, steadily through this gospel, and we've come now to uh, the last third of the book. Uh, there's 21 chapters in uh, the Gospel of John, and the last third is all about the last week, as you know, of the Lord Jesus and the aftermath. And we've seen the Lord Jesus arrested in chapter 18 and taken before the Jewish authorities in the middle of the night, which was against their own law. Uh, There were no witnesses speaking on Jesus' behalf, again, against their law. Uh, Jesus was being directly questioned, which was against their law. He was being assaulted, punished. He was beat, struck by the high priest's guards, which was against the law, because no judgment had been made yet. And in the background of that story in John 18, we heard Peter, Jesus' close friend, colleague, the chief spokesman, sometimes we refer to him, of the 12, denying Jesus three times. I never knew the man. And so, as we try to imagine what it must have been like for Jesus in our our human way, we see him abused physically. We see his heart broken. You know, Peter's denial, remember, was in sight of the inner court where Jesus was being questioned. Because remember, at one point, another gospel tells us, when the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and and made eye contact with Peter. He could see him. And yet, through all of this, Jesus, we've seen, is totally in control of the situation. He is in command of the flow of events that are taking place all along. And in chapter 19, we have seen him brought to Pilate and arraigned again before the Roman governor. Remember, he sent him away once to Herod. That's recorded in another gospel account. And Herod questioned him, didn't find anything to kill him, and sent him back to Pilate. So, here we are in... Chapter 19, verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And part of the strategy of Pilate here is, as we know, he's not convinced that Jesus has done anything wrong, anything worthy of death. And so it seems as what he's trying to do here is is just to do enough to to Jesus to harm him, trying to change the minds or the attitudes of the Jews who were so insistent that he die. And Pilate seems to be hoping that somehow he can get out of this decision. So he comes out a second time to the people. Verse 5, where we stopped last week, Pilate says, Behold the man. And now in verse 6, I want you to notice first this morning, if you're taking notes, that Jesus our King is cleared. The King is cleared in verse 6. When the chief priests and officers saw him, Jesus, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, in his reaction here to them, uses very obvious sarcasm. He knows full well that they're not allowed to do this, but this is what he says to them anyway. Take him yourselves and crucify him. So if you're so dead set on getting rid of Jesus... Why don't you take the responsibility of getting rid of him yourselves? Why are you trying to pass the buck on to me? I've made a ruling. 
I don't find anything wrong or worthy of death in this man. So why don't you just accept my ruling here? He says, I find no guilt in him. Pilate has declared him to be guiltless again and again and again. In fact, this is not only the witness of Pilate, this is the consistent witness in the Gospels to the innocence of Jesus Christ. Even Judas, do you remember? The man who betrayed him said that he had betrayed innocent blood. Matthew 27, 4. And you remember when Pilate, his wife, which was recorded in another gospel, had been urging her husband to have nothing to do with Jesus. She called him that righteous man. Matthew 27, 19. And Herod, Herod Antipas, King Herod, who was kind of a Jewish puppet in the Roman system, he, he had found Jesus having done, as he said, nothing worthy of death. Luke 23, 15. Later on, as we go into the future text, the dying thief on the cross, hanging beside Jesus, would say about him, this man has done nothing worthy of death. And three times here, which we've been pointing out in chapter 18, verse 38, chapter 19, verse 4, and here in chapter 19 and verse 6, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And yet it is an essential part of our salvation that Jesus, who is innocent, would die. In the language of John Calvin, one of the reformers, he said, Jesus is, quote, arraigned before a judgment seat, accused and sentenced to death by the words of a judge. Jesus would be legally condemned to death by a judge in an official court of law. Then he would be crucified, coming under the curse of God. Remember the law says, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. That was the salvation plan. Always was. And why is Jesus' innocence so important to us? Why is it such a big deal that Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus? Why is it such a big deal that his disciples find him to be innocent? That even those who are killed with him will say that he has done nothing worthy of death. Why is that important to us? Well, it's because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. No sin, no death. Before sin, no death. Which is one of the reasons we reject the theory of evolution. Because there can be no death before there was sin. The consequence of sin is death. Whether it's spiritual death, right? The separation of the soul from God. Whether it's physical death, the separation of the body and the soul from each other. Or whether it's eternal death, the separation of the soul and the body from God forever. No sin, no death. And if Jesus had been a sinner he would have had to die for his own sins. But because Jesus is not a sinner, because he is innocent, 
He can step in as our representative. He can go where the sinful cannot go. As the sinless one, the innocent one, He can stand in our place. He can carry our sin because He's not carrying His own. One of the things we've seen as we've gone through the Gospel of John is that the Passover has always been in the background, even from the very beginning in chapter 1 when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, and starts talking about Jesus as a lamb. Thousands of lambs, every Passover period, were led to Jerusalem to be sacrificed. And you, you know the story, it's in memory of those first Passover lambs that died so that the people would be freed from bondage in Egypt all those years ago. The Passover lamb became a picture of what God's Messiah would do for us. He would die in our place. These lambs, by the way, were examined by the priests, the temple priests. And if there was one flaw, if there was one fault, they were not acceptable as a sacrifice. And we've talked before about how, uh, how the, 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 the high priest manipulated that system for his own benefit. To be the Lamb of God who would carry away the sin of the world, Jesus had to be innocent, sinless, just like those lambs, without any spot, without any blemish. And when they shout, crucify him, Pilate says, you crucify him. I find no fault in him. Nothing worthy of death. And this is good news for the believer. We've sung about it this morning, haven't we? Do you remember the words? Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. It's the gospel. Praise the Lord. Our king is cleared of all sin, innocent. Secondly, I want to notice the king is cross-examined again, verses 7 through 14. Things aren't going well for Pilate on this day. As you've noticed before, up to this point, he's been trying to rouse some sympathy, it seems, for Jesus. But it wasn't working. No matter how much he humiliated Jesus, he couldn't get these Jews to budge. Look at verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now it's very interesting. Pilate's job as the Roman prefect here was to maintain the local laws as well as the laws of the Roman Empire. So they had Pilate in a bit of a dilemma here. Uh, you know, it was possible that, that calling himself the Son of God wasn't that big of a deal. He, he could have been calling himself an Israelite. The Israelites are called sons of God in the Scriptures. But we already know, don't we, in the Gospel of John, in this context, the phrase Son of God has been defined for us. We know what it means and the Jews know what it means when they're using it. Back in chapter 5, verse 18, 
The Bible says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Why was calling himself the Son of God making himself equal with God? Well, I have two sons. Jonathan and Jason, both of my sons have human natures. Do you know where they got them from? Me and my wife. They got their human natures from human beings, didn't they? Because that's how it works. Human beings have offspring, only have offspring that are human beings. So if he calls God his father... And if he claims to be God's son, what does that tell you about Jesus? Everything that God is by nature, Jesus is as well. That's why they said he's committing blasphemy. They understood when Jesus called God his father and claimed to be the son of God, he's actually claiming to have the very same nature as God. To make himself equal with God. In fact, Paul tells us that later, doesn't he? In Philippians 2, that being in the very nature of God, he humbled himself. They knew what they were saying. Now, this claim probably would have gone over the head of Pilate. Except that Pilate was responsible for order among the Jews. And something about this phrase, son of God, makes Pilate shudder a bit, doesn't it? We know that the Romans from history were aware that the pagans talked about people called divine men, people that were different from everyone else, people that seemed to have some kind of abilities. Maybe in today's culture we might call them superheroes, you know, with special powers. Well, Jesus maybe is somehow one of these divine men that the pagans talked about. We see an illustration of that, by the way, over in Acts chapter 14 and verse 11, Paul's on his missionary journey. He's in the city of Lystra, and he's just healed a man. And the the people say this, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So maybe by this stage, Pilate's worried that when they use the Son of God, that term, Son of God with Jesus, you know, what's just happened? He's just had Jesus flogged, mistreated, Maybe he's aroused the anger of the gods. We don't know exactly what's going on in his mind. We know that he was impressed with Jesus, didn't find any guilt in Jesus, but now maybe he's wondering about Jesus, where he's from, what kind of supernatural ability or status he may possess. And so verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? The implication is, you know, not from, you know, oh, I'm from Nazareth or I'm from Galilee, but are you from somewhere else besides planet Earth? Jesus gives him no answer. Why does Jesus not answer his questions? Well, he's just had a conversation with Pilate in chapter 18. He's told Pilate quite a lot about himself. He's told Pilate about his own kingdom. 
which is not of this world, the kingdom of heaven. But Pilate has obviously not listened very well. And Jesus not answering Pilate really bothers him. Gets under his skin. He's frustrated now. Look at verse 10. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He's, you know, he's getting up on his high horse now, right? You know, he's towering over this, this man who's all bruised and bleeding in front of him. He's like, do you know who's speaking to you? Do you understand I'm the Roman governor? Do you understand I have the, uh, the weight of Rome behind me? I, I have the power to change your life. I can get you out of this, or I can crucify you. Don't you realize that? And now Jesus speaks. And he reminds Pilate that any power that Pilate had had been delegated to him. Look at verse 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. From above. Do you see what he's doing? He's answering his question, isn't he? You just asked me where I'm from. I'm from above. You would have no authority over me unless you had been given it from above. Paul affirms this, doesn't he, in Romans 13, in that section on human government. The powers that exist have power because it's been delegated to them by God. He can take it away from them just as easily as he gives it. Now, the powers that be are important, they keep order in the world. We're thankful most of the time, for them. But they're not permanent. They're not going to last forever. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above by God. God's reigning over all of this. God is sovereign over all this. You can do as you will, Pilate. You can do whatever you decide. Do what you desire. Do your worst. But nothing you do will ever be done outside of the authority and control of God the Father. It never will. It never can. You know, sometimes we live our lives, make our plans, do our stuff, strut around, think that we're in charge of anything. And we think that we can do something independently of God. We may not say that out loud. Sometimes our lives betray those kinds of thoughts. Jesus says here, not even a great power like Rome can do anything independently of God. God's authority overarches every other authority. He's sovereign over all. God and God alone has the authority. Now that didn't absolve Caiaphas of his responsibility as the Jewish leader, though, did it? It didn't absolve Pilate from his indecision here as a leader. But Jesus is saying to Pilate, you wouldn't be in charge unless God put you in charge. But he was on to, to express that Pilate had not been the one who engineered this trial. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, reference to the Jewish authorities who had brought him here. And in many ways, this is Jesus' last comment on Judaism. 
on the leaders of, Jew, of the Jews. And it's right here that we're about to see the utter failure of Pilate as a man, as a leader. Verse 12, he's still trying to release him. Pilate's not convinced of his blasphemy. He's not convinced of his sedition against the government. He's impressed by Jesus' courage. He's overwhelmed by Jesus' personality. He has reason to fear the crowds, though, doesn't he? They might very well complain to Caesar about what he's done. He hasn't been a good leader. His own influence at court back at Rome, we know from history, had already been diminished by this time, by the death of an individual who was a friend and supporter of his. He knows he's on his own. And the Jews cry out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Being Caesar's friend was kind of a technical title. You know, so-and-so is a friend of Caesar's. They're on his side. He is Caesar's blessing. He is Caesar's approval. You're not going to be one of those people, Pilate, if you let Jesus go free. Anybody who calls himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, verse 13, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. That simply means it's the day before the Sabbath uh, here during the Passover week. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. So he's brought Jesus out already once. said, Behold the man. That didn't work. Now he's brought Jesus out again, but he's sitting down on his throne, on his bema seat, on his judgment seat to make a ruling and says, Behold your king. Once again in John's Gospel, the focus is drawn onto the kingship of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know if Pilate was being sarcastic here. We're not told. We can't read into his voice or his inflection. But as he points to Jesus and says these words, he's picking up on this theme that's been going on. They say, the Jewish people have said that he claims to be a king. Pilate says, here's your king. Behold your king. Look at your king. You really think this, this, breeding, this bleeding, bruised, broken figure is a threat to Caesar or to me or to you? In a sense, I think Pilate's probably mocking their charge again against Jesus. And of course, even as Pilate says this, he's saying more than he realizes, isn't he? Just like the high priest had done earlier, Jesus is, in fact, the king the anointed king of the Jews and everybody else. And yet this travesty of justice, taking an innocent man and about to condemn him to death, is exactly part of God's big plan. The king is cross-examined. And finally, notice this morning, the king is condemned. The king is condemned. Verses 15 and 16. The people cry out in condemnation of Jesus. Listen to them. They cried out, Away with Him! Away with Him! Crucify Him! 
Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Now, can you believe what's about to happen next? It's the chief priests of Judaism who reply. Listen to this. The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Pilate's eyes must have nearly popped out of their sockets when he heard them say this. He must have wondered whether he heard correctly. Aren't these the Jewish people that he's been trying to keep under control all this time because they've been rebellious against him and rebellious against Caesar? Anytime Rome wanted to do anything, these people have always been resisting. Are these the same people? They hated Roman interference in their internal affairs. They hated it. Listen to them now. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar. When they said these words, they're betraying their national heritage as a people of God. They're rejecting the sovereignty and rule of God. They're denying their own messianic expectations, the prospect of a Messiah, the Christ, to come and rule over them based on the promises of God's Word. Cambridge University professor uh, Westcott wrote this, quote, the kingdom of God in the confession of its rulers has become the kingdom of the world. In place of the Christ, they have found the emperor. They first rejected Jesus as the Christ, and then driven by the irony of circumstances, they rejected the Christ altogether, unquote. By rejecting their Messiah King, these Jewish leaders are showing indeed that they do not have any king but Caesar. And they're pronouncing their own condemnation. This is the defining, damning moment for this nation, for the world. In Psalm 2, a very popular psalm, which was often sung by the Jewish people, it's been appealed to in the Gospel of John several times. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? against the Lord and against His anointed Messiah, Christ. And when the Jews sang that song, they often, you know, they, they would interpret it. Well, there's the nations and there's us. There's the people of God and there's people of the world. We might say the saved and the lost. Not anymore. On this day, the people of God are the world. They're collaborating in the murder of their maker, their rightful king, their rightful Lord. And in one action, they are guilty of both of the false charges that they had leveled against Jesus. Blasphemy and treason. They're blaspheming God by throwing off His authority and they're treasonable to their own king the Lord Jesus. 
That brings us to verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And that's where we stop this morning. We're just minutes away now from Golgotha's Hill. Just minutes away from the nails hammered into the hands and the feet. For us, it will be two weeks until we return to this text. But can you feel the weight of this chapter pressing down on our Savior? He'll very soon be crucified for their crimes, for their sins, even though he's been consistently declared innocent. This is the very heart of the gospel, isn't it? We're the guilty ones. He is punished. We go free. That's the way the gospel works. And aren't you glad for it? I'll invite the praise team to return to the front as we prepare for our final song and for the Lord's table. As they're coming, just a final thought. When we think of this crowd rejecting Jesus, of course, their word, away with him, crucify him, their word will not be the final word, will it? It won't be the last word, will it? One day, Jesus himself will sit down on a judgment seat. He had told them this earlier in John's Gospel, John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He will have a crown on His head, but not a crown of thorns. He will be robed, not in a borrowed tunic from a soldier, but in robes of splendor and glory. And on that final day, men and women, the issue will not be, what will you do with Jesus? The issue will be, what will Jesus do with you? Maybe you're here this morning and you have yet to decide for or against this King, this man, Christ Jesus. What will you do with him? Will you make him king over your life? Will you bow before him and call out to him as your Lord, your Savior? Will you believe in your heart that he bore your sins on the cross and that God raised him from the dead? Or will you say, away with him? Away with him.